0: We are glad to make all of our JCast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to JCast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org/donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Stender, a JCast Network podcast. For more information about other JCast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. To share your thoughts about this podcast or others, please visit facebook.com slash Network. Thank you to my dear friend and colleague, Candidara Rosenblatt, for that beautiful music to, uh, to add some, some glory to these proceedings. And thank you to Reverend Queen for the beautiful introduction and to all of the congregation of St. Paul's, uh, all of its staff and and clergy. Uh, It is such a joy and an honor to be here with you today. Uh, A little intimidating to come on the week following Reverend Kinney, but I will do my best. At the center of Jewish Shabbat, Sabbath liturgy is a question. The Jewish worshiper asks God, Matai timloch betzion? When will you reign over Zion? This is not an ordinary question, no mere invitation to small talk with the divine. Rather, it is a yearning question, a question rooted in heartache and heartbreak. It's a question that evokes the destruction of ancient Jerusalem, an event that involves not only the deaths of thousands, but one that precipitated centuries, of Jewish homelessness, powerlessness, and pain. For more than 2,000 years, the destruction of Jerusalem has come to symbolize the broken and perpetually unredeemed state of our world. Where you find allusions to the restoration of Jerusalem in Jewish texts, it is rarely referring simply to rebuilding a city's structures or replacing its leaders. More often than not, it is speaking metaphorically. Restoring Jerusalem is Jewish for perfecting the world. The perfection of the world, or tikkun haolam, is a core Jewish value. Some say it is the primary Jewish value, the thing Jews are obligated to do above everything else. Scholars continue to debate its full meaning, but in essence, tikkun haolam means the establishment of a social order aligned with God, which is to say an order that reflects God's defining qualities of chesed, love, mishpat, justice, and tzedek, equity. The ultimate goal of tikkun olam is the establishment of shalom, peace, a condition free of division and strife in which every person sees herself as inescapably interconnected with everyone else a society of unity that embodies God's fundamental oneness. It's of course hard to imagine a society governed by human beings which could look like this. After all, when, even when ancient Jerusalem stood, things were rarely ideal. According to tradition, the city's ruin in antiquity was the result of unchecked hatred, pervasive injustice, and rampant violence. And still today, when we have been fortunate to see the miraculous building of a modern Jerusalem upon the city's former ruins, Jerusalem is both resplendent and fraught. It has magnificent contemporary structures and institutions, and at the same time is plagued by insufficient housing and rampant poverty. It's both the beating heart of Jewish spirituality and also the epicenter of interreligious strife among Jews. The meaning of the Hebrew name Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, means city of peace, and yet Jerusalem remains a primary source of the intractable conflict between Israelis and Palestinians. That's why our common ancestors envisioned that the world would only attain true perfection when God herself were sovereign over it. And when God's rule is inaugurated, they naturally presumed that the seat of God's dominion would be Jerusalem. Jewish tradition's most significant city. From Jerusalem, God's dominion of love, justice, equity, and peace would extend over all. In the words of the Hebrew prophet Isaiah, Ki te te Torah, udvar Yerushalayim. Torah shall go forth from Zion and the word of God from Jerusalem. But because Jerusalem has always been corrupted by human imperfection, Jewish tradition has held that God will rule our world from an altogether new Jerusalem, a Yerushalayim Maala, a heavenly Jerusalem, which will in time supplant Yerushalayim Shalmata, the earthly Jerusalem. When the ancient rabbis envisioned that heavenly Jerusalem, they looked upon a city of rubble and ruins, a city overrun by wild beasts, dominated by foreign occupiers, and beset by tragedy brought upon by a combination of Jewish failure and imperial brutality. So they imagined a glorious city of gold and silver, and of sapphires and rubies, of precious stones and of luxurious spices." Such a grandiose vision would have been natural and understandable to a person crushed by a dark reality, as the ancient rabbis were. All of us, in moments of poverty or pain, imagine for ourselves a life opposite the one we are actually experiencing, a life of wealth and well-being, of comfort and plenty. But the rabbis didn't stop there. Alongside their vision of a great and beautiful city that descends from heaven fully built, a city with houses and gates of pearl and doorposts of precious jewels, a city where riches overflow their stores and lay in the street for taking, the rabbis added that among the readily accessible treasures in this new Jerusalem would be Torah. The repository of sacred wisdom that, according to Jewish tradition, reflects God's instructions for building a world of love, justice, equity, and peace. A condition of inner and outer wholeness in which internal strife and external division cease. Where earthly Jerusalem was impoverished, the rabbis imagined heavenly Jerusalem as almost unfathomably opulent and where earthly Jerusalem was beset by injustice, cruelty, poverty, and violence, heavenly Jerusalem would have an overabundance of divine instruction and harmony. In other words, the rabbis envisioned that the earthly Jerusalem and the heavenly Jerusalem were negative images of each other. And in that sense, the rabbis envisioned that our world is but the negative image of a perfected world a world redeemed. Loka olam hazeh, olam haba, they taught. The world that is coming is not like this world. Rather, it is, according to the 3rd century sage, Rav Yosef, an olam hafuch, an inverted world, where that which is great in our world will be made low, and that which is lowly in our world will be exalted. If the heavenly Jerusalem is the rabbinic vision of a new world order, then it is worth spending a few moments exploring what the rabbis imagined that order would look like. I think there are three major components. Radical inclusion, social justice, and pervasive peace. Let's discuss each of those. First, radical inclusion. Among the prophecies associated with the heavenly Jerusalem is that it is big enough to include everyone in the world. The earthly Jerusalem today is about 50 square miles, depending on your politics. In earlier eras, it was much smaller. But according to the 2nd century sage, Rabbi Joshua ben Levi, the heavenly Jerusalem will be so large that a horse running from one side of the city in the morning will not arrive at the other end until midday. I actually did the math here, and that means if we're talking about the world's fastest horse running on the day with the least amount of daylight, Jerusalem would be about 275 miles across. Larger, of course, if it were galloping on the day of the summer solstice, about 385 miles across. Unfortunately, the traditional commentaries don't clarify on that point. But the numbers are not really what's important here. What rabbinic tradition is trying to say is that while the earthly Jerusalem is notorious for not being large enough to accommodate all the people who might otherwise want to live there, the heavenly Jerusalem is large enough to include everyone. The heavenly Jerusalem has space and a place for all people. Underscoring this point for the rabbis are the words of Psalm 122, which they understood not as a description of the Jerusalem that was or is, but rather of the Jerusalem that one day will be. The psalmist writes, I rejoiced in those who said to me, let us go to God's house. Our feet were standing in your gates, Jerusalem, a Jerusalem that is built as a city that is joined fast together, where the tribes tribes of God make pilgrimage. Earthly Jerusalem was famously a hotbed of division and strife, a place whose sanctity was contested by the various Israelite tribes, the point of rupture that resulted in the lost ten tribes, and later ground zero for inter-religious sectarian violence among Jews. Earthly Jerusalem was in ancient times most likely not a city that felt welcoming or inclusive. For many, receiving an invitation to Jerusalem was not an occasion that would have evoked joy, as the psalmist describes, but rather anxiety and trepidation. Who knew what kind of hostility one might encounter among the fractiousness that existed within its gates? The sense that Jerusalem could not accommodate everyone has persisted throughout history and remains true today, when many Jerusalemites are displaced through gentrification, poverty, and a lack of affordable housing, when Jews frequently come to blows with each other over their religious differences, and when Jews, Muslims, and Christians struggle to coexist there. But the heavenly Jerusalem is the opposite. Heavenly Jerusalem is, in the psalmist's words, a city joined fast together, meaning a city in which diverse peoples feel a deep connection to and responsibility for each other, a place where people of every tribe are embraced and included. Heavenly Jerusalem has both the physical and spiritual room for everyone, and no one is made to feel left out. Indeed, according to rabbinic tradition, the heavenly Jerusalem will be large enough not only to house all the living, but also all the dead. A core principle of rabbinic faith is that God will one day resurrect the dead from the first human being onward and bring them to Jerusalem. That's a lot of people, over a hundred billion. But tradition holds that God will make space in the new Jerusalem for all of them. Yes, heavenly Jerusalem will have plenty of room, room for the living and for the dead, for the whole as well as for the broken, for she who is well off and also she who is fallen, for she who is healthy and also for she who is infirm, for she who is free and also for she who is oppressed. The expansiveness and inclusivity of the heavenly Jerusalem extends not only to Jewish people, but to also to all who dwell on earth. Rabbinic tradition takes the words of the prophet Micah, that in time to come, the peoples of all nations will say, Come, let us go up to the mount of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that God may instruct us in God's ways and that we may walk in God's paths, to mean that in this future Jerusalem, Jew and non-Jew will sit down together at the table of brotherhood and sisterhood. And it takes the words of Isaiah, who says, I will bring the foreigners to my sacred mountain and cause them to rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices shall be welcome on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. To me, that in heavenly Jerusalem, all of God's children will join hands as brothers and sisters. And just when you think God will put limitations on that inclusion, Isaiah adds, Yea, I will gather still more to those already gathered. God will defy your expectations and welcome even more people into the city's gates. And this heavenly Jerusalem is not only radically inclusive, but thoroughly and perfectly just. The psalmist identifies Jerusalem as a place notable for its thrones of justice, that is to say, a city in which disputes between people are fairly and equitably adjudicated, in which the social order is maintained because the rule of law prevails and resources are distributed equitably, and in which the moral order is maintained because all people are treated and nurtured as equals. It's fair to say that this picture has never accurately portrayed the Jerusalem of past or present. But in the same way that rabbinic tradition understands the inclusive Jerusalem of Psalm 122 to describe a Jerusalem that one day will be, so too does it hold the prophet's vision, the psalmist's vision, of Jerusalem's justness to be prophetic. A future Jerusalem, a heavenly Jerusalem, will be one synonymous with justice. In this, the rabbis echo the vision of Isaiah, who prophesies that one day God will restore justice and wise counsel to Jerusalem, and after that, Jerusalem shall be called City of Equity. And Micah similarly predicts that in time to come, people will come to Jerusalem from all over the world, specifically to seek out the justice meted out inside its gates, a perfect justice administered by a perfectly just God. Thus, God will judge among the many peoples and arbitrate for the multitude of nations, however distant. In this new Jerusalem, justice would be done justly, and Torah, which demands not only administrative justice and distributive justice, but also unrestrained compassion, will be readily accessible, freely taught, and passionately studied by all. Jew and non-Jew, instilling in all peoples a commitment to love and righteousness. Yes, in this perfectly just Jerusalem on high, no person will suffer want, for the distribution of resources will be fair. No person will suffer discrimination or oppression, because all will be honored as equals. And no person will suffer from an unfair verdict or unjust incarceration because in this Jerusalem, judgment will be perfect. The embrace of full inclusion, coupled with the presence of complete and pervasive justice, leads inexorably to the third characteristic of heavenly Jerusalem, peace. Both Isaiah and Micah speak of a Jerusalem in which all the peoples of the world shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not take up sword against nation, nor shall they learn war anymore. The 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 Again, it is fair to say that the earthly Jerusalem has never been the site of tranquil and harmonious relations between people. Isaiah and Micah in that passage are describing a place not yet of this world, a city of peace whose model inspires all people to lay down their arms, destroy their weapons, and transform tools of human destruction into tools for human flourishing. According to rabbinic tradition, the peacefulness of Jerusalem is a direct result of its inclusivity and justice. The 19th century Ukrainian scholar Malby notes that the need for war-making is due to two things. One, when two peoples do not have a common law, when their legal systems are completely different, the sword will judge and decide between them. And two, to protect law and order within a country, so that people do not rebel and throw off the yoke of rule. This heavenly Jerusalem will be comprised of all peoples from the most diverse backgrounds imaginable. Peace is not possible without such radical inclusivity because, according to Malvin, divisions between people invariably lead to conflict. Peace only comes when people sense that they share more than they differ. At the same time, members of a diverse society, even one that is united under a common law, will inevitably clash. But because the people in the New Jerusalem will be ruled with perfect and equal justice, the typical reasons for conflict and war will become obsolete. And since there will cease to be a need to wage war, people will beat their swords into plowshares and never again learn war. That the heavenly Jerusalem of Jewish tradition would be characterized by peace is unsurprising. The yearning for peace is an elemental human aspiration. For as long as our species has existed, we have always lived under the threat of annihilation. How wonderful it would be, in the words of the prophet Micah, for every person to sit under her grapevine or fig tree, with no one to make her tremble. That's why the desire to bring about peaceful coexistence is central to virtually every major religion, as it is in Jewish thought and practice, three times a day, The traditionally observant Jew prays for God to inaugurate a reign of universal peace in the world, and there are literally countless instances in which the dream of peace surfaces in Jewish texts and traditions. But embedded in the Jewish aspiration for an elusive world peace embodied by the heavenly Jerusalem is actually practical instruction. Peace is possible for human beings to attain but requires the creation of a thoroughly inclusive and perfectly just society. As the Talmud teaches, the Holy Blessed One says, I shall not enter Jerusalem above until I enter Jerusalem below. In other words, the advent of the heavenly Jerusalem depends on our making the earthly Jerusalem an inviting place for the indwelling of the divine presence. A place imbued with the godly qualities of loving inclusivity, justice, and equity. When every human being is welcome, and when justice reigns in the earthly Jerusalem, then the heavenly Jerusalem will finally be complete, its establishment on earth not only possible, but inevitable. Why? Because in making the earthly Jerusalem godly, we transform it into the heavenly Jerusalem. This insight is not simply true of Jerusalem. The persistent brokenness of the earthly Jerusalem is also pervasive and present in every city, and indeed all over the world. Remember then that restoring Jerusalem is Jewish for perfecting the world. So heavenly Jerusalem is a model for a perfected world, and Jewish tradition insists that if we remake any and all of our cities in the image of God's love and justice, they will become the heavenly cities They were destined to be, and redemption will be at hand. Imagine, for a moment, what our city would look like if it were thoroughly inclusive and perfectly just. If we weren't 60 years after Brown versus Board of Education, and 50 years after the Civil Rights Revolution, just as segregated as we ever were if not more, if we were as insistent that poor African-American renters deserve to stay in their home, or that the child of an undocumented immigrant deserved a place in our city as we are about keeping statues of Confederate heroes on their pedestals, if your zip code didn't determine your life expectancy or the color of your skin your prospects for escaping poverty, if 25% of people in our city and nearly 40% of our children didn't have to go to bed hungry at night, if there were equal treatment under the law, regardless of your race, religion, ethnicity, sex, sexual orientation, or gender identity, if we really ended racial segregation, welcomed and integrated immigrants, and made a fully, fully inclusive city. If we distributed resources equitably and ensured full legal equality for peoples of all backgrounds. If we truly cared about everybody's right to life, not just unborn babies. We may not attend, we may not attain perfect harmony, but we would, I think, get pretty darn close. Jewish tradition is urging us then not to simply wait for God to bring the heavenly Jerusalem, to earth. We must not only pray for thy kingdom come, rather God is waiting. God is praying for us to do the work that will make heaven on earth. We gather today in observance of the Lenten season, a season of spiritual preparation for Easter. Of course, I'm not a scholar of Christianity, so please excuse me if I get this wrong. But it seems to me that through Lent, Christian tradition is saying that redemption requires preparation. One cannot fully embrace the redemptive power of the risen Christ without first preparing oneself. Perhaps thy kingdom come, but will we recognize it when it comes? Will we be ready for it when it comes? Will we accept it when it comes? These questions depend entirely on the work we do in advance. In a similar sense, Jewish tradition insists that we cannot simply wait for heaven to come to earth. We are responsible for making it possible. Thus, on the Sabbath, a day of peace in which we cease our often mindless labors in the world as it is, to envision the world as it might be, the Jewish worshiper asks, when will you reign over Zion? This is the question of a person who looks at the world around her and sees everywhere evidence of a world unredeemed. It is, in the words of the great 20th century theologian, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, the question of a person who is not at home in the world, a being who cannot help but experience spiritual homelessness in the sight of so much suffering and evil, and who recognizes that in such a corrupt and broken world, God can never be at home either. The challenge and the task before us is therefore always to make of this world the place in which God truly intended for us to live, in which even God would be at home, a world of love, a world of justice, a world of peace. It is within our power to make of this world heaven on earth. And because we can, Indeed, we must. May the one who makes peace in God's realm make peace for us, for all Israel, and for all who dwell on earth. And let us say, Amen.